Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 11th, a Tuesday, 2022. Um, the weekend did a show with a historian, Dale Kretz, uh, in uh, about his new book, Administering Freedom, The State of Emancipation After the Freedmen's Bureau. It was an interesting conversation about post-slavery America. Of course, that all is premised on slavery itself. And in an odd way, we, or Kretz, dredged up a lot of the issues and complexity uh, and, of course, the moral outrage of slavery. Um, he's not the last or the first person to do this. Today, the news is full of uh, a, a Senate Republican candidate, uh, Tommy Tuberville, who is dredging up other nonsense, lies, innuendo about slavery, uh, not surprisingly creating a great deal of outrage bringing up or dredging up the issue of reparations and crime and slavery. We've heard it all before. Um, on this show today, fortunately, we're not talking about Tuberville, but we're dredging up the whole history of uh, the American, particularly the American slave trade, um, with a very interesting new book called Enslaved, um, The Sunken History of the Transatlantic Slave Trade by two authors, Simka uh, Jacobici and Sean Kingsley. Sean Kingsley is with us. He is um, uh, a historian and someone who, in an odd way, stumbled on this story. Sean, you were explaining to me before the cameras went live. How did you stumble on this story? And what's your background? You're a, a marine archaeologist. Is that correct? Yeah. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having us on your show. Yeah. So I'm a marine archaeologist. I've been a uh paddling around in the world's waters for about over 30 years now, from the sublime to the ridiculous, started out in Israel in two metres of water and then ended up using robots in over 4,000 metres. Um, and some years ago, I had the pleasure to be working in the English Channel where no one had looked before. Um, and the team I was working with found 300 wrecks. Um, and there were the usual suspects. There were French pirate ships. There were uh, German U-boats on secret missions. Um, but one ship really captured my imagination. On the seabed, there was a scatter of 48 big cannon and an elephant tusk and these small copper manila bracelets that look something like this. Um, and any historian or most archaeologists should know when you come across these, what we call signature pieces of material culture, tusks and manila bracelets, they are related to the triangular slave trade from ships going to Europe, to West Africa, to the Caribbeans, to drop off enslaved people and then bring back all kinds of commodities like sugar. Um, and when I saw this ship on the seabed, it stank of guilt. Um, and oddly, there's 37,000 shipwrecks said to have gone down off the UK, but no one has ever found a slave wreck. So this set us on a path of exploration to try and work out what it meant. Uh, by looking at all the finds, um, I figured out that because of its date and nationality being English, it had to be what's called a Royal African Company ship. Um, and at this point, the RAC had a monopoly over the slave trade. So this had to be the, uh, the, the earliest RAC ship ever found in the world. 
And from that point, Simcha Jakubovic, who made this very visionary film in Slave with Samuel L. Jackson, uh, he came knocking. Um, in fact, his, <laughs> I met at a conference, his production team, and they said, do you know anything about slave ships? And I said, well, it's funny you should ask. Funny you should ask, go on. <laughs> Um, and from then we just got talking, um, and they saw, I think we shared, um, the dream. They were looking at nine shipwrecks in four continents. Um, and you know, slave wrecks are pretty hard to find. There's 3 million wrecks in the world's oceans. And if you look at the slave trade database, um, it refers to around 1,020 that have gone down over time. Now I would say we probably know of around 10, uh, at best of these slave related wrecks. So they're kind of as rare as, as hen's teeth. Um, they're hard to get to, they're hard to identify. There's an emotional attachment of whether you should do work on these ships. Um, but this gave the opportunity, it was deep but not too deep in 110 meters at the Western approaches to the English Channel. And it gave their team the chance to actually get out there with a dive team from a group called, a black dive group called Diving with a Purpose who are based in Florida to get up close and personal on the bottom of the seabed. Um, and I think one of the reasons that I'm so fascinated, you know, in this story is like you and, you know, all of your listeners, I suppose we all know the statistics between the transatlantic slave trade, you know, 12 million Africans trafficked, 1.7 million died crossing the cruel sea in the middle passage. Now, for me, when I kind of try and think about these statistics and I like playing with statistics, it hurts. You know, it, it doesn't make sense at some point, as when you deal with the Holocaust, I suppose, or the killing fields of Pol Pot in Cambodia, the mind just shuts down. But here for the first time, really, rather than just um, reading dusty archives about what happened, here was an opportunity for a group of divers from all different ages and backgrounds to get down and look at this material, to touch it, to interact it and have an emotional reaction. And that is the power of the shipwrecks. It gives you the opportunity um, to see and to understand and ask the right questions. Uh, so uh, shipwrecks, my understanding, um, uh, Sean, is that shipwrecks freeze the ship and its goods in time. Is that correct? Were you able to, to, to capture um, a real-time vision of, of, of what it was like to be on a slave sh ship? Yeah, so um, there is this image in the public consciousness um, that shipwrecks are time capsules, um, kind of like a is that wrong? Effect. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> so um, you know, shipwrecks are shipwrecks are shipwrecks. If you go into the Baltic or the Black Sea or the Great Lakes, where this dive team also later went uh, into Lake Michigan, you will find wrecks which aren't wrecks they're ships they're still standing it's eerie the mast is still upright there's rope wrapped around it um and what i would say on all ships that went down unlike on land where everything's very um deliberate people live in a home or a church or a synagogue or a temple um and over time they fall away and they die they take the material away it's recycled that building will become a different entity it's different with a shipwreck because when that goes down, it is technically frozen in time. Everything that is on it stays there. It's rather like you imagine going along the motorway and you see a FedEx or a UPS van that's crashed. You know, wrecks are crash sites. Everything that went down on it is on it. Unfortunately, because of the hand of man and nature, 
Um, some wrecks can be brilliantly preserved and others can be in a lesser state. So um, in this particular case, and, and you see that across the board in the book Enslaved, you know, there's one wreck off the Guerrera, um, a Spanish uh, slaver um, off the Florida Keys, uh, which has been completely shattered and scattered uh, by hurricanes. So you're looking for really small forensics, not organics, but mostly bits of iron like cannon and ordnance and cannonballs that may still preserve. On other sites, uh, such as in Suriname, where the Lusden went down, a Dutch ship, there's very heavy, deep sand. So you would expect to have excellent preservation, including the hull. And then there's a kind of middleman, if you like. So, you know, yeah, so, it, so Sean, uh, let's get beyond all the, the technicalities on this. Um, your book, uh, which you wrote with Simcha uh, Jacob Avici, uh, Enslaved. Uh, Jack of a Beach, um, uh, the enslaved, the sunken history of the transatlantic slave trade focuses on what these ships were like. Um, I, I can't imagine there were anything less than nightmares for everyone except perhaps the free crew. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's no doubt about it that these shipwrecks are uh, silent witnesses um, in many cases of, you know, of, of what can be seen as, as, as great crimes. Um, and when you touch... Although you know, these crimes were, at the, at the time, they were legal. They were legal. That's absolutely correct. And that's the one thing that we kind of want to use shipwrecks to do is ask why such bad ideas were accepted and went on for so long. People put up with it, um, which, which talks about economics. But yeah, from the moment that an African was captured and thrown in a hole in the ground in a fort and women were raped through to trying to rebel. And if you were caught, your hand was cut off, first of all, because Africans believe that you would never be able to go back home if you didn't have an intact body um, through to um, once you had been purchased, you know, the surgeon would get you to jump up and down and look in your mouth to see that you were sound of what they called wind and limb and didn't have the pox. Uh, then you'd be branded over the heart with the name of your new owner, in the case of the Royal African Company, D.Y. for the Duke of York, you know, and the horror would just continue. Um, but we also, you know, look at the positive side. There's a lot of villains. We all know who the villains are in this tale. But this is also a tale of heroes. Um, and the team, die, the dive team, go and visit uh, freedom boats um, in the Great Lakes. So, yeah, there's one, was it called a home? The home schooner. Yeah. Um, and um, and the Niagara, yes. So, I mean, many, many books and movies, uh, television shows have been made about the nature of slavery. What, what do you think your book, Enslaved, tells us that perhaps we didn't already know about what it was like to be shipped from Africa to North America? Um, you certainly, when you dive on a hull, and you look through the hatch and you can see the hold where people were pushed into in the case of a good preservation in the Great Lakes, or you see a flattened hull. It's a kind of, um, it's an emotional reaction. And usually when you read about this kind of thing in the history books, you have a rational reaction. Um, so I think it gets you much closer to the immediacy of what happened and lets you break through those statistics, which are just so hard to deal with. Um, you know, in a, and also, you know, it's a sort of soft way into the subject as well. It's a very hard subject for a lot of people, understandably slow. 
but having some adventure and exploration and the stories of horror, but also the uplifting stories of people who made it and survived and the heroes along the way, like Thomas Clarkson, who spearheaded the abolition, you know, you can see it as, a, as an uplifting narrative as well. Tell me a little bit about your partner in the book. Unfortunately, he can't join us. I'm not going to keep on trying to pronounce his last name because I'm making a fool oh. of myself. Uh, Simcha, uh, he's based in Israel. Um, he's pretty well known. Uh, he is, um, he, he's won three uh, US Emmy Awards. So he, he's the filmmaker side of this and you're the, the marine archaeologist side. Is that right? Up to a point, um, you know, I've, uh, I've known Simcha Jakubovic for some time. He's based in Canada. He's based in Israel. You know, he's been uh, an activist. He's very successful. He also does biblical archaeology, as I also do biblical archaeology. No, he, he's quite controversial on, on that front, his, his biblical archaeology. I guess that's also a, a controversial subject. Lots of claims and counterclaims and authentic and inauthentic claims. It's true, but it's very hard to make television about archaeology these days, Andrew. You know, unless you find a UFO under the pyramids, it's hard to stuff get commissioned. So I'm not surprised that things are popular. Um, and um, yeah, to be honest, when he approached me about enslaved, I wasn't I wasn't sure about it. It's such a, a serious subject. And, you know, can you treat it in a popular way? Um, you know, but because there were so few slave wrecks around, you know, we agreed to be part of this. We thought it was... You know, it's very unusual for archaeology to be of the moment. You know, what we do can be seen as fun, adventurous, sexy, if you like, you know, diving and, and exploration. Um, but, you know, literally as they were filming this and we were doing the first pages of the book, you know, the, the world was on fire with the Black Lives Matters. Uh, statues were coming down in Bristol. So it really was a, a unique opportunity um, to, you know, tell the story of the history of the world of the slave trade from the bottom of the sea. Um, and what I can say is, um, you know, I think this was an incredibly hard film to make, but thankfully, you know, pushed with the inspiration of Samuel L. Jackson, other, other great guys. But, you know, it is very visionary. I'm a hard-nosed scientist, Andrew. Um, you know, yet at the end of every episode, you know, I found myself shedding a little tear with a lump in my throat. Right. Jackson said, for me, uh, enslaved is an attempt to to give a voice to the millions whose voices were silenced, not they were silenced, they were eliminated, the millions who actually died on, on these ships. Um, and this was what kind of voice would you like in this project, the book and the, and the, and the television series? What, what kind of voice would you like to give, the, particularly the slaves who, who died, uh, who were drowned, who were killed on these ships? Who's, who's, I'm not sure if you found many bones in your work but certainly uh their remains uh exist now under the sea yeah i think in some environments you will find bones you know fortunately i haven't because bones are contentious for you know obvious reasons um certainly for the the diving with a purpose group you know they spoke continuously about giving voice to the silent um and you know that was very potent, very powerful. Um, it's not for me, I feel, to represent. But I think what we can do with this book um, is certainly, you know, raise consciousness um, and make, you know, people aware. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of the colonial amnesia. You know, we think of the slave trade of something that happened and something has finished. Right. Um, but for millions of black people, it hasn't. You know, it's something that they struggle with. They try, still try to work out their identity 
you know, a few people have done DNA and, and worked out their roots on the basis of it. And maybe that gives a sense of, 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 of closedness. Um, but, you know, for instance, during the filming, and we cover it in the book as well, um, a few years ago in Lagos in Portugal, which was the birth of the transatlantic slave trade in the 15th century, um, the authorities are making, uh, a developer rather, is making um, a new underground car park. They hit a site which is four meters deep, stuffed of bones, chicken, hens, refuse. And they've come off the slave ships from West Africa and were dumped outside the city walls. And at some point they hit 158 graves. The archaeologists came in, they did DNA analysis and worked out that these were from Bantu tribes um, of the 15th century um, in, um, in West Africa. And of course, they weren't buried with rites inside the city um, because they were heathens. Um, they weren't Christian. And the point about this story is rather, you know, Portugal has <laughs> abundant statues and monuments of their conquistadors and their explorers, but where are the ones for the transatlantic slave trade, which they kick-started? Did they put one over this site? No. They leveled it off and they put a mini golf course there with these sort of bright characters and it looks all great fun. Um, but, you know, it shows there's still work to do and there's a need to raise consciousness. And when you add that England has apologized for the slave trade, America has, a lot of African countries have, the Pope has, Lloyds of London and the Bank of England. But Spain and Portugal, they still haven't apologized for the transatlantic slave trade and they're part of it. Um, and so in some senses, the wounds linger. How has your book and the television series been received um, in Africa? Have you had much uh, input in terms of perceptions of, of what you're trying to do and the legacy that you're revealing? I, I like how you, you put it about this colonial amnesia. Is there a, a similar sort of amnesia in Africa itself? Or do people trying to remember more this historic crime, perhaps, but certainly amongst the greatest crimes in history? Yeah, that's really a question for Simcha because he traveled to, you know, all these countries and I didn't. What I would say is certainly there is, you know, there's great interest and Simcha had professors, black professors from universities in Africa involved in the series. And of course, Samuel L. Jackson goes on a, a pilgrimage back to Gabon where he came from based on DNA to, you know, meet the tribe and the kingdom from where he came. Um, so, uh it's a very sensitive subject, uh, Andrew, um, about to what degree um, African peoples were involved in trafficking other African peoples and the extent to which the Industrial Revolution was damned by this several hundred years activity. Um, and, and I don't really want to comment on that. We do address it in the book. Um, you know, I would say that the Portuguese, the Dutch, the Danish, the French, the English, the Africans, everybody was involved and culpable at some level. But what is absolutely valid is that if it wasn't for Europeans' greed and their drive and desire for sugar, coffee, profit and power, there wouldn't have been any slave trade and there would not have been any African involvement in that as middlemen potentially. Let's talk very briefly, uh, Sean, about the difference between the book and the television series. Um, what were the challenges and opportunities of writing a book with Simca about this as opposed to doing the TV series? Yeah, so, I mean, on the one hand, you've got this amazing baseline where you can sit down and watch the video 
Yeah. Um, and, and so you've got you've got a basic plot line, which we did. We, we, we kind of we changed the order somewhat. Um, Archaeology is quite hard to do. Um, when it's not visual, just in a kind of written form. Yeah, I'm imagining so, that. So, so the book yeah. brings different sorts of challenges. Yeah, but what we could do, which you can't do in a popular TV program, is we could deep dive really into that history. We can look a lot mm. more um, at the sugar trade um, and the relevance of that, because you know, uh, no sugar trade, no black trafficking, <laughs> um, etc. Um, and also look at the way that. Um, look at uh, the way that, for instance, the sugar uh, fix is still with us today is 160, cost the US uh, health service $163 billion a year, even though it's- Yeah, certainly the, some of the larger, I mean, even a, a company like Cadbury's in the UK, we had one of the Cadbury's on the show, who wrote another book actually about the Holocaust, um, mm. but they're still implicated. They have a great deal of responsibility. The uh, I mean, the, as you're suggesting, the entire economy in some ways or the entire industrial economy is based on the legacy of slavery. Let, let's talk briefly, Sean, because, as you say, you're a, a marine archaeologist. Um, uh, you do uh, wreck watch and some some people be familiar with your uh, other book, God's Gold, a quest for the lost temple treasures of, of, um, of Jerusalem. Let's talk sp specifically about a couple of the boats that you found that. The Loisden uh, is a particularly resonant one. What did you find with this? Tell us about this boat, the Loisden. Lois yeah, the Loisden was always going to be a hard find. Um, it was a ship that um, an academic, a professor from Amsterdam University, Leo Belay, um, and a very good Dutch archaeologist called Jerzy Gavronski had been looking for for some time. Um, and that got Simcha involved in, in the search for that. Lewiston was a, a Dutch uh, West Indies company ship. Um, it was a deliberately made, designed as a slaver. Um, and it headed out to, um, from, from Ghana, um, heading for Suriname um, with um, well, around 700 slaves to feed into the 500 uh, sugar plantations that existed in Suriname, um, which was just a giant uh, sugar, sugar factory. And so, you know, the remit for that was to try to send diving with a purpose from the nice warm waters of Florida to the rather soupy and uh, sandy and silted up waters um, of Suriname. Um, now, that was a ship that had missed Sur um, the entrance of the Suriname River um, and went down on a sandbank. Um, and it's known where the coordinates are. Uh, the great narrative of that is that 664 Africans perished or were murdered. Yeah, um, they were murdered. At vessel. least according to the Wikipedia entry, um, yeah. between 664 and 702 people died below deck when they, the crew essentially left the, the, the boat and imprisoned these people, in entombed or entombed these people so that they would die, they would drown. So the figure is actually is 664. Um, and the crew decided they didn't want to risk I mean, it was up to, the water was basically up to chest height. They could have got out and they could have waded to land where there were communities in Suriname and Maroons who were escaped slaves who lived, tried to live peacefully in the outback. And they could have joined and had a hope to join those groups. Um, but the Dutch crew decided to bolt the hatches, sit on top of them all night until the cries died down, um, just to make sure that they didn't revolt and, you know, didn't kill their captors. Um, and it is the greatest uh, mass murder 
in the whole 200 odd years of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, um, and again, you see the element of the greed um, on because what did the crew care, quite frankly? Uh, let's be honest. Uh, the ship was old. Uh, the ship was insured. The hull for 10,000 guilders, the cargo for 40,000 guilders. Of course, they had had time to dive down and to salvage the gold for which they get a salvage award when they got home from Holland. Um, so, you know, it was just it was a minor inconvenience in this monstrous machine, um, which they would go on and get another ship and fill it up and head out over to Suriname once more. Unfortunately, or tra- uh, that's the wrong word, tragically, the, the people who died on the, um, the Lois then are unnamed. But you, your book actually has some named slaves or ex-slaves. Oladao Esquiano, you write about in the book. Um, t- tell me about this character, a remarkable man um, who, who, who features in the anti-slavery movement and who was on one of these ships. Yeah, so, I mean, for me, this is one of the as, as a kind of grubby marine archaeologist, um, you know, learning about these heroes was, was one of the really fascinating, gripping points of writing the book, or my part of it, was Simcha. Um, and, you know, for me, he's the great hero in many ways of the whole uh, trigger that leads to abolition. Alauda Aquiano um, was a son of an Igbo chief in Nigeria in the kingdom of Benin. Um, and he was captured. He was um, sent to Montserrat, where he was enslaved. Um, As with all slaves, he would have had his hair cut off. He had his name changed to Gustavus Vassos. Um, And he had the opportunity to had just enough leeway to sell glass tumblers here and there and to make some money. And eventually um, he worked his way up of being trusted in the inter-island trade. Um, to, um, to work as a, as a, as a merchant for uh, Mr. King, his, his boss man. Um, and he made enough money, actually, to free himself. And there's a whole change of, chain of what-ifs that start off with Equiano, who I call the father of the transatlantic... Uh, beg your pardon. I call um, Equiano the father of abolition. Um, he gets on a ship. He heads to England to start a new life. Um, he shipwrecked off the Bahamas. Um, so there's, you know, history as we have it today could have been very different if he had perished. And by the way, that's a wreck which I'm desperate to go and find one fine day. So he gets to England. Um, he starts a new life. He's become a Christian. Um, he's very articulate, speaks very well, um, plays the French horn. Um, so he really clashed with people's preconceptions about what a black, not a nice word to use, but savage um, Everything was that he wasn't, you know, one day he's reading the newspaper and he sees a story about a ship called the Zong um, that's heading for Jamaica from West Africa. Um, and the captain decided he didn't have enough water uh, to get all the way to Jamaica, which he'd missed by 120 miles. How you miss Jamaica by 120 miles, I don't know. Um, and um, so he decided, had the great idea to throw 130 slaves under the cover of darkness out the cabin window and, and again murder them. And this absolutely enraged Equiano, who decided not on my watch. And that is the trigger of the transatlantic slave trade. He talks to his contacts um, who um, are working um, on the black, uh, on the abolition movement, um, who then talk to uh, Wilberforce, um, who's sort of the figure in Amazing Grace, the film, who's seen as the real hero 
of the slave trade and abolition, but actually he's right at the end of the chain. And there's a whole link of coincidences and characters that then get us to um, the abolition of the slave trade act in 1807. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a tremendously important story and book. Uh, I don't suppose Tommy Tuberville watches this show, but it would be good if he did because then he would understand that he shouldn't be making dumb comments about something he has no understanding of. Um, Finally, um, Sean, uh, we've done a number of shows on the legacy of slavery, particularly in America and this issue of reparations. Mm. Did the writing of this book, uh, Enslaved, did it suggest to you any particular take on the rights and wrongs of reparations, of paying back, and I use that word carefully, uh, paying back for this terrible crime against Africans uh, uh, shipped from, from, from Africa to North America to become slaves? Uh, we don't address that in the book. because I, think I, I understand, uh, but what, what about you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, of course, you know, in the way that the world is, is one of the hottest social topics of the day. You can't ignore it, you know. Can we, should we point the blame at universities, the church, financial institutions, the bank, um, for their role in profiteering in the trade? Absolutely, yes. You know, does that mean that the modern deans and directors and incumbents of the same institutions should be held somehow, irres- you know, responsible? You know, I personally, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not one as a maritime historian archaeologist. I don't believe in cancelling the past. I don't believe in throwing a statue in the water. I don't, I don't think bubble. anyone's. And, and, and the, but my question was about reparations, not whether to pull down mm. statues. Uh, and certainly reparations is about remembering rather than forgetting. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, to answer your question, you know, there's a $100 million endowment at Harvard. There's £20 billion uh, reparations in the bank going from uh, Glasgow University. And I'm sure this is just uh, the tipping point, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg. For me, the question is, what gets done with it and who makes that decision? You know, do you think you're assuaged of your blame or guilt by simply handing over a pot and not having necessarily a concern about what is done with it? For me personally, and I can't talk for enslaved, I can't talk for Simcha, I would like all these organizations, the Lloyds of London, the banks, the universities, you know, f- for me, this is about education. And, you know, we started talking about all these shipwrecks are in the bottom of the sea and there's storms full of fascinating materials from Key West to England to America. You know, I'd like some of that money to be earmarked for an international museum of the transatlantic slave trade, you know, at least in one continent. Why not on every continent? So that the messages and the raising of the consciousness that we talk about and those stories can be told time after time and time so they're not forgotten. I think that's quite wise, Sean. I know the impact of the African American Museum, uh, history of African American Museum in, in Washington, D.C. has had a huge impact. I think that's a, a very interesting idea. And I, uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I'd, I'd like to get Simca actually on another show because I think he brings a different kind of perspective. Uh, what else? In, in um, Congratulations on the new book that you co-authored with Simca, uh, Enslaved, The Sunken History of the Transatlantic Slave Trade. I guess it's miserable reading, but also in its own way inspiring. What else are you reading, perhaps to cheer you up a bit? 
Yeah, and I should say it isn't miserable. It's actually quite uplifting because obviously you've got the horrors, but of also you've got the adventure mm. and the exploration. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and we wanted it not to be too heavy for that purpose. Uh, me personally, I've got a I've got a young kid, so I suppose Doctor Seuss's Cat in the Hat doesn't count, does it? But um, well, it does. If if that's what you're reading, <laughs> that's what you're reading. I, I I've recently read uh, Anthony Durr's uh, Four Seasons in Rome, uh, which is just poetic and so beautifully written. Um, and Rome is one of my favorite cities, and, and, and it's a non-fiction book about him moving here, moving there ridiculously when he just had twins, and he had to write his first novel. And the sense of exhaustion and, you know, trying to be creative at the same time really, you know, struck a chord with me. The other thing that I've read is, is uh, it's an academic book um, called Apollonia on My Mind, written by a professor called Nick Fleming uh, by Sidestone Press. Um, and it's a memoir, and, and he's a very well-known marine archaeologist um, who really just, you know, he mostly, he, he's, a, he's a dry, he's, he writes in a dry way because that's your job as a scientist. But actually, towards the end of his career, you know, he's stepped back and he's given this flowing memoir of the first man to go out to Apollonia in Libya and actually dive in the 50s underwater in a harbor and record it, and then realize that, the levels of where things were have subsided and then goes around the world looking at sea level change, which has great you know, relevance to uh, global warming today. Uh, and he's the first person to realize, actually, you know, we've got prehistory on land, but we've got a lot of prehistory underwater. Um, and he's, you know, he's hard as nails. You know, he trained in the Marines. Um, he was in special boat services um, and, and full of fascinating ideas, actually beautifully, very well written. And then the kicker, you get to the end, and he doesn't make a big deal about this because he doesn't want anyone's pity. He spent the majority of his life since 1969 in a wheelchair as a paraplegic. Yet there's photo after photo of him in the middle of nowhere, getting onto a plane on a rocky shore mm. um, and doing what he wanted to do. Uh, you know, and he's the quiet man of the sea who's now come out with his voice. And I think you know, the drive and the passion which he speaks about really you know, should inspire students and this kind of snowflake age um, in which some of us think we live.